You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Media Kicks, the leading influencer marketing agency. Media Kicks connects the world's top brands with engaged audiences through social media influencers. Their campaigns drive brand awareness, audience engagement, and product sales for top brands like Nordstrom, Blue Apron, David Yurman, Hallmark, and more. Visit MediaKicks.com to get started with your influencer campaign today. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Kyle Heller, co-founder and chief strategy officer of Cinematique. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited you could be here. I want to start off by talking a little bit about how you found your way into this whole online video space. Sure. Well, that's a loaded question, but I'll start off by saying uh, I've been an entrepreneur all my life. I, at the age of 19, moved to LA and decided to get into the wonderful world of, of filmmaking. I started my first company with Gina Resnick, who ran business at Columbia Pictures. How did you and meet Gina? Really, we were, it was 2008, 2009, and we were really trying to figure out what the future of film was, like from an economic standpoint. Like everything, everybody was closing from Warner Independent to Paramount Vantage, Picture House, all the, all the main players were shuttering. And so we were thinking around like the economics around film, how we could actually create a slate financing or something of that regard to innovate within that space. And it was really challenged because the capital markets were challenged and the film industry is always challenged. But we met on that premise and then we just started producing together. We've done about eight or nine movies tons of content from digital content to branded content, now some TV. So we still have that company. But that's kind of what led me into technology was really trying to solve the problems of video and monetization and distribution. You know, where could we actually take video beyond just the sort of 30 second commercial or the VOD that was starting to form at that time, what are the other monetization and revenue drivers in video? That was really compelling premise for me after distributing a lot of my own content, myself, films myself. I had films that that were at Venice Film Festival, at South by Southwest, etc. So we were really trying to figure out what was that future of video monetization. So how did you get your start in filmmaking? That was really just going at it. I'm a big believer of trial by error, really learning, failing fast, moving, iterating. And I, you know, just started, you know, I've always been a creative project oriented person, you know, filmmaking films, I I think of as like a startup with a shelf life is sort of the way I think about it. And, you know, so I, I I had created other businesses before, even in when I was younger and I wanted to get into that idea of, of creating, you know, films and businesses on an ongoing basis and sort of really producing, really putting projects together. I love working with people and collaborating. And so that's what was really driving me at that time. And film is sort of the ultimate collaborative medium. And so that's why I entered into film and started producing movies and, and other content. I think I kind of broke through by just really reaching out to people and having meetings, coffees, lunches, dinners, second coffees, second dinners, drinks, you know, really getting to know people because I knew that people were the driver behind making something happen and bringing something to life, whether it was an idea or a piece of IP or material. 
And so that was what really was my strategy in terms of getting content made. So you took those experiences and relationships from your filmmaking career, and you said you had this passion for technology. So what was some of the first projects that you worked on in the tech world? Yeah, I think I taught myself how to code for the first thing. And uh, I was working with on a number of different projects. One, one was called Convo that I sort of dedicated a lot of time to. And, you know, one of the things I learned with Convo and was that market timing is everything. What we were trying to do with Convo was basically create a two-sided conversation platform for comments. So what I realized, and this was 2010, 2011, was that there's all these comments, whether it was Facebook or Twitter or on blogs at that time, and there's just so much noise. And you never knew what what was truth, what was fake, what was uh, valid, what wasn't. And, you know, what people agreed with and what people didn't. And so we created a technology that was basically a comment technology, similar to like a discuss that forced you to vote on a specific article or idea or concept one way or the other. And when you made a comment, you would appear on the side that you voted on. And so the idea was that you could try to persuade people from one side to the other. And, you know, we were probably four or five years too early. I was going to say, where are you now? Facebook should acquire that business. Yeah. Yeah. It was a difficult thing to pull off. I mean, you see now with fake news and, you know, just the crazy comment streams that exist today. I think it's highly relevant. But I really learned in that, you know, for me, my domain expertise was film and TV and content. So even though that was somewhat of a content play, I was a little bit out of my element. Did that have a large political bent? We tried to keep it universal. I think that we didn't want it to be a change.org or a voting platform per se. We wanted to solve the problem of, of just actual content and you know whether people agree or disagree with a, with a specific opinion. What did you take from that experience? Yeah, I mean, the market timing, I think... You know, just from a product standpoint, you know, I think any entrepreneur in technology learns what you overbuild or what you underbuild, you know, how to prioritize features. And so from a product management and considering I was doing a lot of the the coding myself and I was funding the entire project as well myself, you really learn those those hard, the hard truths around, you know, where to spend money, where to spend your time and your resources. Are you still coding today? Tell us a little bit more about what you do at Cinematique. <laughs> you know, I built the all the front end initially for Cinematique. You know, I'm fortunate enough to not have to be, have my head in the, in the code. You know, I get to spend my time thinking about innovation and, and about where the future of the product can be, um, how it fits into the given markets that we're entering. But yeah, it was definitely a necessary skill, I think, at the beginning, because I'm a true believer in this is part of my film background is you kind of create your own destiny and, and, and control your own destiny. And, and the more that you do, the more, obviously, the more you know, success or the, the probability is in your favor. So your focus on the strategy, tell us a little bit more about the original inspiration for Cinematique and what the product focus is today. Sure. Yeah. You know, we came up with the Cinematique concept really, it was when the iPad was really, really first coming out onto the market. I, I was developing camera mounts with Panavision and we were shooting vertical video because we wanted to really use the iPad or the vertical uh, format, uh, portrait format um, to our advantage in creating content. Uh, so we were actually working on hardware that, at that time. You know, if you can imagine 
you know, the Alexa, the Red, you know, they were quite bulky at that time, even 2012, 2013, you know, we had to actually create mounts that improperly mounted the lenses and you could actually do a pull down system in post to recreate that vertical shooting format. And so we were actually tricking the camera at that time. Uh, now everybody shoots vertical on their iPhone because it's just easier in the palm of your hand. So that that really took off as well. Again, another indication of market timing. How do we how we actually wanted to maybe go capture or be an expert in vertical video if there was an opportunity there. So we ended up creating the technology because we were watching this content, this beautiful content in the palm of our hands, but wanting to know more impulsively about what was in the actual video content, whether it was the, the, the clothing or the products or the locations or the models. I mean, really feeding that impulse that we all have when we're watching a piece of content and inspired by something in it, whether or not it's the character or what they're wearing in a, in a movie or TV show or something in a commercial or you know, shoppable branded marketing piece of content. So you wanted to bring more interactivity, almost bring that content to life through touchable, shoppable video formats. Exactly. Yeah. And what are some of the challenges in creating technology and serving the market for touchable or shoppable video? I think the challenges are pretty consistent with the challenges of innovation, you know, with any new innovative product. And I think it's very similar to a certain degree with what's happening with VR right now, where you have you know, slow consumer adoption or awareness or really market need, you know, it's inevitable that it eventually a VR is going to, to be, you know, the common sort of in, in some form, right? I think it's sort of like in the brick cell phone days right now, where it may have, it has almost a singular use, you know, whether that's gaming, et cetera. And, and it's evolving, right? I think with, with our technology, there's certainly a market need for it. We see customers, brands specifically want to use this technology. I think there's a huge demand, actually. We can't even handle some of the demand on the, on the brand and marketing side because they know that you know, reaching consumers through commercials is diminishing in value. It's almost unquantifiable at this point in terms of what the ROI actually is. Just because we're all so desensitized to advertising at this point? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's that. And, and, you know, I think it's gotten to a point where brands know they need to create video, but they don't necessarily know why or what the what the direct benefit is. You know, you buy a banner ads, you at least kind of know what the conversion is or you buy AdWords on Google, you know what you're what you're getting for that. Um, and so there's now this sort of inherent sort of structure and expectation in place that I think brand marketers have. And I think that will change also for, for video and sway in our favor. That's where the demand is. I think back to the challenges, it's the consumer education, understanding that this is a possibility. When they do understand, their minds are are blown. They're They're open to all the possibilities of what this could be. But I think that's certainly... One of the one of the largest challenges, but when they again when they know it's it's available, they just start touching or interacting with the video, and then they kind of feel like, why shouldn't all video be like this? And it might almost be a generational thing, right? I mean, if you see kids today, they they feel like every screen should be a touch screen. Yeah, and I think that maybe we're just right at the end of that spectrum where future you know generations of people are going to grow up expecting all video to be interactive, expecting those more enriching and engaging experiences. I, I completely agree. I think. One of the things I I did, I think it was maybe a year ago, 
was I filmed a two-year-old sitting on a lap of her father watching one of those old swivel DVD players. And she was watching some kid's show and she was trying to tap on the actual objects in the video. She was my best customer. She was the consumer that I'm actually building my product for. And I think um, that was a truly kind of special moment to see that. And I actually filmed her <laughs> doing that, that yeah. process. So you talk about how important market timing is. Do you feel like you've hit just that right timing or is it, is it early? How do you find those customers? If you say that you know people who are even two years old today are going to grow up expecting that type of technology everywhere. How do you get that in their hands and, and drive that awareness earlier? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that you know, the, one of the challenges that we face in, in video is sort of you need, it's the supply question. We need the video to deliver it in a way that reaches those consumers. And we're kind of at the mercy of, of the customers that pay for our product and the ways that they distribute it. Um, so it goes back to that sort of control in your own destiny, sort of a little bit out of our hands in that, in that respect. But you know, we see a very strong market demand from brands and advertisers um, and even media companies that know that they need to elevate their content and enrich their content and enhance their content in this way and, and create that conversion that's going to drive sales. So I, I think it's going to be a trickle down. I don't think it, you can. I think we chose that direction. I think you could choose to, to go market towards the, the kids specifically, but that's challenging in a lot of other ways. So what do you see are the primary applications today? Are you coming across, you know, retailers who want to drive sales directly through e-commerce? Is it more, you know, the studio that's looking to create more of an engaging experience to draw those lean back viewers in and engage more deeply or ask more information about the content they're consuming? Or is it both? Our technology works broadly. I think our focus certainly is in the advertisers and retailers that are demanding this product. They know that they need that conversion and we do that great. And we see it. We've designed the technology in a way that doesn't cannibalize their content. That's that's the filmmaker nature in us. So it's you know very seamless to where you're touching, you're not interrupting the content, you're getting the products that you want without interrupting the video. And I think that to us is the reason that we built it for everybody. It's universal. It's not just saying Here's a, a banner ad that pops up over the video and you click it and you can get that product. It's really about the format of video evolving. And it's something that hasn't evolved for the last hundred years because now we're all watching video on connected devices. And now it's brought on, it's brought online. Video is brought online. And that's almost even universal now with OTT coming online, with you know mobile being obviously such a huge driver of video consumption. So I really think that, you know, we'll expand beyond that retailer brand, but we know that we have to at least work with the demand that we're getting and, and, you know, kind of build the business foundation around that and then, and then evolve. As a filmmaker, do you feel like this technology allows you to tell stories in a different way? Does it impact your narrative opportunities? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think the brands and, and media companies can get really deep with what they want to provide around, you know, a character or a specific location. You know, we did this great video with Kate Spade with Anna Kendrick, and it was a huge success. I mean, the, the conversion metrics on that alone, you know, drove hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue just through the video itself. They sold out of the coat that she was wearing five times. It was a remarkably successful video. 
But one of the most interesting things about that video was that when you touched on Anna Kendrick, you got a behind the scenes video with her answering questions from Kate Spade, from Kate Spade's consumers. And we saw the amount of time spent in that specific item was 10, 15 minutes, you know, people watching it over and over again. So not only were they spending more time in the video of itself, but they got more video in the video that they discovered and shared and explored, which was, you know, I think a huge revelation for the client at that time. And certainly for us to where we saw the power of this thing. Wow. It's almost like you've got these hidden little Easter eggs for uh, the viewer to find. Yeah. Imagine, you know, Star Wars content and how deep you could go with just all the different, you know, merchandising opportunities, but also the characters in the world. world. Yeah. You talked about VR a little bit. How will VR and AR 360 video and other technological improvements in the video industry impact what you're doing in the shoppable or touchable video landscape? I think it's all complementary. The fact that, you know, we're really a format that lives in any video experience and VR is video and, and AR is, is video to a certain degree or augmented at least. But, you know, we see that as being much more capable with our technology to how with the VR experience, you know, it, it really is about for taking it beyond just touchability. It really is about, you know, the different formats in which cinematique and our technology can work. It's not just clicking. It's not just touching. It can be gesture. It can be all these different, you know, ways of communicating through different languages. It could even be voice. So all these things that we're thinking about is sort of inherent to our core technology. Yeah. Interactive versus immersive and how the two worlds can blend together. Yeah. I mean, what we do is provide information into the content that you're watching and we can do that on an object level and at a time-based level. So you're touching on a specific item in the video or reaching out and grabbing it. It's all the same to us. You mentioned that you've always considered yourself an entrepreneur. Is that in your blood? How did you, you know, come across that path? <laughs> For me, it's about bringing ideas to life and, and working with other people. I think, you know, I've always been hugely collaborative, whether that was on projects for school as a second grader or and doing going over and above and building the largest volcano or whatever it may have been at that time, but working with others and being proud of that, what you build and what you stand for. And, you know, I love the idea of hustling, of, of really working hard and being passionate about something and really standing for something that runs deep in my blood. One of the first things I ever did when, when I was 11 was created um, coupons and at the Kinko's and went to local businesses and, and got coupons from the local businesses and went around the neighborhoods and resold them. That was something that I thought I could make a lot of money on, one, as, as an 11-year-old, but I got really good at sales. I got really fearless when it came to knocking on somebody's door you don't know and being okay with a no, being okay to be rejected, but taking the risk to go out there and to make it happen. And it's, it's hard to say no to an 11-year-old, <laughs> but so you work the competitive advantages that you have, yeah. but that was something that really I learned, I think, very early on 
and it's sort of ingrained in me. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> What's some of the best advice that you received early on in your career when you were that 19-year-old who moved out to LA, wanted to get a start in the entertainment business? What were some of the things that, you know, stuck with you? You know, there's there's a lot. I think, you know, finding mentors is just hugely important. It's just you can't there's not enough information to possibly ever take in yourself and there's so many people that have made so many mistakes ahead of you, so why not learn from that? I mean, I've made a ton of mistakes. But I'm always looking for mentors and I'm always looking for the people that know the things that I don't know. Like I know what I know. I know what I don't know. And that was one of the, I think one of the key things that always stuck with me, you know, whether that's um, a partner in a, in a business, whether that's an employee, a mentor, I think, you know, that's hugely important to me. What are some of the best books or resources that uh, you've learned from over the years? One of the things I learned also in, in my film days on set and being a leader on a set was that I had to know a lot about a lot of things, but not go deep necessarily. I didn't have to be the best. I didn't have to be a focus puller on a camera, but I needed to know how to communicate to that focus puller, what they did and earn their respect, understand why they were asking for certain tools or resources that they need. And so for me, that was a huge learning experience, you know, whether that was and, and earning the respect of, of other people by showing that interest in a lot of things and being willing, having the willingness to learn and, and even, you know, pick up a light stand or, you know, drive a grip truck. I drove the camera truck on one of my New York shoots across the Manhattan bridge every day and night with, you know, $450,000 worth of camera gear and, um, you know, done some crazy things in my, and, and that gave me grit and, and made me learn a lot of things. And so I take that into kind of my, my learnings today where I'm maybe learning by other people or by books. So I have an interest in a lot of different things is sort of my long way of saying it. I love to learn about venture capital because I believe that these, well, there, there's a lot of really smart people in venture capital. It attracts a lot of really seasoned people that have either been in, you know, worked in an operational capacity or that just really understand pattern recognition. And so there's a lot of things to learn from that. And I love to read about that. I've been reading a lot about cryptocurrencies and blockchains to kind of satisfy some of my technical brain. I read a lot of creative in film. So whether it's scripts, or, you know, treatments and show Bibles just to kind of understand character storytelling, which I think is a huge, is hugely important for the way that I tell stories in whether that be about my business or be about a product or be about a specific thing that I'm working on. Uh, so I think there's a really an array of subject matter that I'm personally interested in and, and it changes, you know, all the time. What does the future hold for Kyle and for Cinematique? Will we see any of those passions converging or interests bubbling up into a future startup? I mean, Cinematique, I, I'm extremely proud of, and I think it has a very bright future. There's a lot ahead of us to tackle. And I think it's inevitable that, that you know, all video will be this way at some point. And, you know, I'm excited to, to kind of lead, lead the charge in that. It won't be my last company. I mean, I'm I'm very much in it for the long run. I don't see myself settling, but I, I think that there's a, a bright, long future ahead of us. What's coming next in the video space? If you had to make three predictions, what do you see? Yeah, I, mean, I think 
monetization is going to be key, I think, in, in video. As I was sort of talking about earlier, is even on the brand side, everybody knows they need to create video. On the media side, everybody's creating video. Now content creators are basically distributors. So it's, it's sort of debundled from just the Netflix of it all. And I think OTT is you know, had a lot to do with that to where you used to open up your Apple TV or your Roku and there was like four apps and now there's 200 plus. And so now it's it's somewhat democratized in that way. But I think also Netflix certainly has the lion's share as we all know. Although I think there's going to be a need for competitive differentiation. And I, I, I think content is, you know, you can only spend so much on content economically and to make your business sustainable. Like there are a lot of companies that can't spend the $9 million an episode that Netflix can. And so how do you compete? And I think that's, there's going to be something there that is going to trigger that to kind of, there's going to be something there, whether it's technology, whether it's new ways of distributing or marketing, I think there'll be something there that will be opportunistic in just the the content space. And and as we see, you know, in the content space, I think every, what, five or seven years, it sort of ebbs and flows, right? It consolidates, you know, then you have Verizon putting however much money into Go90 and, you know, and all these other different companies popping up. I also think it's that the studios are going to be, are challenged, you know, with movies. And, you know, you read, I read a lot about it and we all probably hear a lot about, you know, sequels, prequels, and remakes, and, you know, really what is, how sustainable long-term is that? And when, you know, we're at the golden age of TV and how long is that going to last? And so I think there's a lot of moving parts here and things are moving faster than ever. But I think the studios obviously have Paramount making its move more into TV. And, you know, I think Warner and Sony probably will, you know, more aggressively if they're smart, which I think they are. And, you know, they've obviously tried to make some movements into that by owning certain digital properties. But I I think the idea of digital versus TV and all this is sort of going to just collide. It's just all becoming one one thing. And it's going to be really about just the premium content versus the non-premium content, which I think we're starting to already see a lot of that. If you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? I would do what I'm doing. I would continue doing what I'm doing. I think that there's a tremendous opportunity to enrich content as it already is today, not by doing something that's going to sort of change or try to get people to do one thing differently. Like like VR will work because it has so much backing, but like that's incredibly challenged. You're talking about getting people to recreate content in a very specific way. And now 360 helps because you can kind of fake it. But then again, that also kind of hurts to a certain degree too, because you don't get the full experience if you're experiencing the 360 in a a VR environment, because it's not really shot for VR. And so I think you're going to start seeing more of that where people are actually creating. And I think I just saw today CA signed their first director in VR, which was exciting. I'm bullish on it, although I think it's going to take time, like HD took time, where it was a a real format shift, real like people actually had to shoot in HD to deliver in HD. And I think that that, you know, just requires time and the resources. Where I sit is it's easy. You just apply our technology onto your video and it makes it better and you can monetize it and, and, and create conversion through your video. Why wouldn't you? And, and as a consumer, if you had the choice to watch a video 
with banner ads and, and pop-ups all over it versus a video where you can actually choose to touch on the objects and get more information from it. Which, which video experience are you going to choose? And also as an advertiser, if you can be involved in that experience, it's much more valuable as well. It's kind of taking the traditional model and standing it on its head, saying mm-hmm. that rather than being interrupt-driven, where the advertiser is this disruptive force, weave them into the content and the engaging audience experience, lean we, into that. And we've seen that proven, you know, with native advertising. And we've seen that proven, you know, across other mediums. And, you know, and, you know even product placement is somewhat overt. You know, it, you know, nobody wants to see, you know, hey, here's Tide holding a bottle of Tide in, in a video. It's, yeah. it's not really... Uh, <laughs> I think audiences today are hyper aware, right? Hyper it's like we're hit over the head with these uh, brand integrations sometimes. Yeah, and even, even in that, you're seeing that in the influencer market in that space. It's almost becoming, it's going to cannibalize itself to a certain degree. Yeah. Do you see influencers adopting touchable video formats? I do. I don't think it's that easy. I mean, there's obviously the 800 pound gorillas that exist in that space. And, and, you know, they have limited resources on their end to make touchable video work for them in a way that I think is going to be hugely compelling where a brand or an advertiser immediately gets the benefit from it. Where can people find out more about you and more about Cinematique? Cinematique.com. They can find out more about me on my Twitter handle at Kyle Heller. Well, Kyle, thanks again for being on the show. So fun to learn a little bit more about your background and predictions and some of the (laughs) the experiences that you've had. This is awesome. And and I think, like you said, there's so much more left ahead of us for interactive video experiences and the work that you're doing with touchable and shoppable experiences at Cinematique is awesome. So I encourage everyone to check it out. It's really cool. If you go to the website, you can see some examples. And thanks again. Appreciate it. Thanks, James. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.